Suki Hantu, and a very good afternoon to all brothers and sisters in the Dhamma. Welcome back to the continuation of our talk on the Sigalawada Sutta, part two from Diga Nikaya 31. Uh, for most of you, I think you all know Sis Sylvia, but I'm not sure anyone is joining us for the first time. So I'll take a little bit of uh, time to introduce Sis Sylvia. Uh, Sis Sylvia has dedicated herself to the study and practice of the Buddha's teaching since 1992. She holds a BA Honours in Buddhist Studies from the Buddhist Empire University of Sri Lanka, where she later lectured. She also has a Master's in International Public Policy from John Hopkins School of Advanced Studies. Since 2001, Sis Sylvia has been a regular speaker on Buddhist doctrines and their practical applications at local and regional Buddhist organizations. In 2013, she published her first book, Between the Lines, an analytical appreciation of Buddhist life, and is now working on a second book, Towards the Light. Um, I'm honored to invite Sister Sylvia to lead us with a homage to the Buddha and to commence with the talk. Please, Sister Sylvia. Thank you for the introduction. May I invite everyone, put your hand together, take a slight bow, and uh, recite with me. Namo dasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo dasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Today we're going to talk about Siga, the Sutta advice to Sigala. And this is part two. Part one was delivered two weeks ago. And we managed to cover about what would appear to be two-thirds of that sutta. In effect, that last one-third of the sutta takes up a lot of space, a lot of bandwidth to explain. And I think, it, because I feel that it, it should not be shortchanged, we should, we should uh, cover that area thoroughly. Hence, I requested that this sutta be covered in, in two parts. To today, we're going to I, I will show you what we have covered, and then I will show what else we have to do. Okay, so the last the last lesson we have done um, upholding of sila, as well as how do, how does one tell between what is a good friend and what is not a good friend? Sorry, this is what we have covered. Huh? Uh, in the in the last session, the backdrop, the the upholding sila, the discerning friends, the four types of friends which are who are bad, and the four types of friends who are good that we want to treasure. So basically, this was done. Really, we're not going through them again. Huh? no questions on this today. We're going to focus entirely on this one. Today, we're going to do two things. One is on financial planning according to the Buddha, and the second one on managing harmonious relationship. That part is going to take up the bulk of this afternoon's discussion, okay? Now, on financial planning, 
it's, it was said in a stanza. And as you can see, the translation here is done by John Kelly, Susoya, Victoria Hum. You can find this in Access to Insight. The reason why I chose this translation over the others is probably because they are lay people. One, two, their translation is much easier to follow. And some parts I have I've gone through the Pali words and all, I think they're okay. This is, this, their translation is fine. There, we, we, it's not inconsistent with what is written, captured in Pali. But more importantly, it's, it's readable, okay? Especially on the, the, the verses, the way they translate it is much easier to understand. Okay, so the verse. This verse marks the transition between the earlier portions dealing with friendship and morality and the, the next portion dealing with relationships. This is that transition. And here the Buddha said, the wise endowed with virtue shine forth like a burning fire. Hmm? Gathering wealth as bees do honey. So drop by drop, little by little. Heaping it up like an end hill. Once wealth is accumulated, family and household life may follow. So, as lay people, to have a reasonable, um, comfortable, reasonable, peaceful lay life, you cannot help but be concerned about monetary matters because that is our existence, our subsistence, okay? And the Buddha's recommendation, the Buddha's advice, he, the Buddha, foremost of the monastic, advising a lay person how to guard, safeguard his money, his assets, his wealth. Can you see the irony? And his advice is very good. He said, number one, don't be greedy. The idea here is don't be greedy. Don't look for big explosive gains. Instead, slowly, carefully, systematically build up your assets, build up your wealth. The idea here is don't hurry. Sometimes when we, when, when we are caught up by greed, by the hope of a huge gain, huge unexpected gain, when we hope like this and we want like this, we will fall prey to scams, to problems. We take undue risk, unnecessary risk. We end up with more problems. If you, if you just imagine, just think, if you do exactly as much not much problem. Do it slowly, patiently, gathering wealth as as bees do honey. Do it gently, slowly, allowing conditions to, to make it possible for you as opposed to rushing things, okay? That's the idea here. And you have to build because he said, once wealth is accumulated, family, household, life may follow. Not necessarily sequential, but you cannot start a family with nothing, no assets. That's the idea here. You, you can't just plunge into a relationship when there is no stream of steady earning. 
we're not talking about a lot of money. We're talking about steady earning, st financial stability, financial security. So when you have that in place, the rest of the lay life can follow. Okay, that's the idea. The second part, which I thought was very, very funny, is how he gave financial advice. Dividing wealth into four parts. One part, you enjoy. So it's consumption. Two parts, invested in business. The fourth, set aside against future misfortunes, i.e., you must have savings. Buddha also advised saving. Buddha advised business investment. Now, let me explain this a little bit. You are reading the advice of one who lived 2,500 years ago, more than 2,500 years ago. That world is a very different world. There is no bank. There, there were no banks then. There were no banks, officially, or official money lender. They, they do not have idea of borrowing money from bank using your property or business as collateral. None of that. So if you want to grow your wealth, you actually have to use your savings to grow. That is why he said, one half of what you have earned, take one half to spin. If you're a businessman, you take that one half to buy the goods that you can sell. If you were a farmer, you must take one half to buy the grains, the seeds, the seeds, the, the necessary um, productive tools, production tools to plow, to help make more growth, no, to, to, to basically grow your agriculture. And, and so the idea here is not that I take one half and put into stock market. There is no stock market. It's really taking one half, don't use up everything, but always reserve a portion for future earning, to, to make it possible for future earning. That's the idea. You take it, you see from a different angle, he's advising you don't eat up everything. You don't spend every last drop on consumption. And you must always prepare for a rainy day. Isn't it? Cute. Old days, uh, rainy day, putting the money aside means not putting it in a bank. Uh, you're basically burying in the garden. Okay? There were actually stories where people passed on without having told their family where to dig out their wealth. Then that Peta, because he's so attached to his wealth, the poor Peta hung around that money, the pot of money, hung, hanging around because so afraid that others would take his wealth. Bear this in mind, huh? because this, has, this is the reason why subsequently there is an explanation. Okay? So, I repeat, one part for consumption, one half for future growth, for generation, one quarter to save for a rainy day. So this was financial planning, Buddha style. You can talk Buddha style, okay? Now he go, now he went, Buddha went into Sutta proper. With regards to earlier point, he said the guy was worshipping in the six directions. 
Now the Buddha addressed specifically each of the six directions. He used it to explain relationships. Relationships. You must bear in mind that by the time he talked about relationship, he had already stressed certain key features that in any kind, any kind of relationship, you must start with morality. You have to be a good person. You have to observe the precepts, avoid causing pain, hurt, harm to others, pipe down on all your akusala, be a good person, be a good friend yourself. Know, know to see for yourself and know to pick friends who will be supportive, who will help you, and not the ones who will ache you on in terms of indulgence, sensual pleasures, indulgence, indulging in vices, and so on and so forth. So by the time you reach here, by the time he got to this point, the person listening would already have been quite wholesome. The mind is kusala, okay? Kusala. So then he starts. The very first portion was the eastern direction. In, in ancient... In ancient Asian society, Asian society, for some strange reason, they all start with the East. Chinese also start with the East, right? Dongnang Xinbei is also the East. I suspect it's because, I think it's because sun rises in the East. So if you are living in a society that is very respectful of nature, because nature is that which can cost you great harm, but also gave you bountiful blessings. So deep, the deepest of respect for nature and the most prominent aspects of nature, the one that jumps at you in the face, is the sun. The sun. And the sun rises in the direction that is called east. Hence, this is that direction that gives life. Life. Therefore, parent and children, okay? Parent, because it's parents who gave you life. You like it or not, you are possible in this form, in this shape, size, with this lot of DNA, because of what you have inherited, partially because, partially because of what you've inherited from your parents, the limit of your height, the, 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 the expand of your size, even this processing speed, a lot of which depends on your genetic code. So here, here the Buddha said, how, young man, does the noble disciple protect the sixth direction? The sixth direction should be known as father and mother as the east, teachers as the south, Spouse and family as the West, friends and colleagues as the North, workers and servants in the lower direction, ascetics and Brahmins in the higher direction. You know, Buddha said ascetics and Brahmin. 
he was very all-encompassing, embracing. So this covers all the relationship that you can possibly think of. All the key relationships that you can think of. And the, the, from in all the relationship, the Buddha highlighted for the individual his duty and his responsibility first, as opposed to sense of the due, sense of entitlement. You see, for many of us, when we look at relationship, for many of us, we can't help but instinctively say, well, why are you doing this to me? Why are you not doing this for me? So that is due and entitlement. But here the Buddha is, was approaching from a different angle. Ask yourself, what must you do for another? And the themes that runs through all the relationships, these are the themes. Empathy, compassion, generosity, gratitude, respect, care, consideration. You will see me talking about these themes again. In fact, you can even highlight them. You can yourself, when you go through, pick these themes up. If you look at this, uh, the, the, the first stanza, this direction should be known as mother and father, teacher, spouse, and family, friends, colleagues, then, and so on, right? You see, is he didn't say parents and children. He only said father and mother. And on the south, he says teacher. He didn't say teacher and student. It's later on. After this, you'll see the rest. The reason is because Sigala, Sigala is, a, is a child. This is from the perspective of Sigala. And Sigala being the child, he would then, Buddha would then point out your duty as a child. Before we talk about the duty now in the reverse role as the parent. Okay? So he said, Buddha said, in five ways, Father, in five ways, should a father and father, should a mother and father, as the, the eastern direction, be respected by a child? So this is from the perspective of Sigala, the son. This is your duty to your parents. Okay, your duty to your parents. The Buddha said, and the child must think like this. I will support them who supported me. I will do my duty to them. I will maintain the family lineage and tradition. I will be worthy of my inheritance. I will make donations on behalf of the ancestors. I will support them who supported me. Buddha had always highlighted this point with regards to a child's duty to the parents. When we were born, to the point where we can differentiate and earn the, and do things for ourselves, protect ourselves, you tell me how many years that would be. Would you expect a one-year-old baby to know what to eat, what not to eat, how to look for food? You don't. A fellow cannot. You leave him alone, he will starve and die. Two-year-old, he can wander off, but he still doesn't know how to look for food. Three-year-old, four-year-old, where is that cut-off point before the child on his own can actually survive? 
actually, it takes many years before you can trust that kid to eat the right thing, eat when he should, and somehow survive day to day to day. So this idea that you owe your parents your life is something which a Buddhist, a Buddhist must remember. This is what the Buddha taught. We owe them life. Okay? And if you are grateful, if you are one, if you are someone with gratitude, you must always remember this. So no matter how your parents say you, say you, you're not happy, you cannot turn your back on them because you owe them life. You cannot, you cannot repay life's debt. Okay? Doing my duty to them. You see, in ancient India, they were, there were actually rules of behavior, rules of conduct, and they, they can be very elaborate. In our modern society, especially since we start to emphasize learning from a Western-leaning culture, we, we start to not become so clear about what we should do for people, okay? So the word, I will do my duty to them, may not, may not it becomes very subjective, People just do what they want to do. I will tell you what a duty should be. The fact that the Buddha didn't elaborate tells you he expects you to be there for them, not just on the basic, but as much as you can go. Okay? So there will be the, the, the material part, the looking after them financially part. That's the material aspects. But for the Buddha, he also talks about mental health, emotional support, because it is a duty of the child to look after the parent the way they look after us. When we were young, you make noise, the parent comes running. When you were upset, the parents come comforting, right? Did we do that for them? That's emotional support, huh? it's not just material support. When you were young, you eat your food, the parents cut for you, that prepare everything for you. But did we do that for them? Have we done it for them? You see what I'm saying? So actually, you think about it, doing my duty to them. The parents seem, seem to instinctively know what they should do for you. But then when we do it the other way, we don't seem to, we don't sometimes seem to get it. Maybe the transition wasn't done properly. You know, you see, uh, parents are always doing for you. No, 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 they always do for you. But at some point, you will have passed that age, right? You would have passed the point where you can do things for yourself. Now you should do things for them. But that part, it is not clear. So the result, which is I have seen this for myself many times. I've seen it for myself. How the parents are still doing things for the children. But the kid sees no compulsion, sees no need to serve, to look after them. They don't jump up and, Mama, I will do it for you. They, they, they don't have the same kind of enthusiasm. So this part, we fail. We didn't do it well enough. Next, 
I will maintain the family lineage and tradition. In ancient society, the family's name is a form of protection. Everywhere you go, that name opens door, draws people to look after you because it's reciprocity. And, and so you can go village to village. If people recognize your name. They will say, oh, we know this family. We want to be helpful to their children, their kids. That is why in the sutta, you will see very often so-and-so, the Buddha Sakyan clan, right? The Buddha Sakyan clan is like a calling card. He is of the Sakyan clan. And then they will say all kinds of things about the Sakyan clan. You want to wear a name, you have a certain duty to that name. The name offers you protection because it commands a standing. You too must do what it takes to protect that name. Because we are very much affected by Western ideas. It's not, not just Western. In fact, our Western is specifically the American idea. The US has a very different history. In case, in case you're not familiar, US is a new society, right? The US is a new society, meaning to say it didn't appear deep in the recesses of history. It appeared 1700. And by then, for many of them, they were already breaking away from their old, the old world. In their time, Europe was called the old world. They were changing massively. The emphasis, the values were changing given their historical circumstances. We are not from the US. We are different. We, we are of a culture where we do have some responsibility to looking, we, we are obliged to look after family. You don't run off and form your own family or live on your own out there. No, we continue to live with the parents, right? So because of our emphasis about family and duty and responsibility, we shouldn't be so caught up about individuality. We should also bear in mind the need to honor our family by doing things that, that make them look good. I'm not talking about professional success and all those things. Huh? Although many people will assume that it means that, no. I'm talking about being a good person. Can you just imagine when you go there, you're out there and you are flung on, on social video, put on Facebook about you bullying someone, are you, your parents where to put their face? You see what I'm saying? It's actually real. So out there, you are not just you, you do have a duty to your kinsfolk, your, your siblings. People will be ashamed of you, that's sad. <laughs> This one about worthy of my inheritance has to do with what I said earlier on. What you will get is really what was given to you. In our world, many of us are able to earn a living independent of the family. In Buddhist world, in those ancient days, it's not the same. Many of them must start they, they actually start in their life 
with help and support, financial support from family. Their family is poor, then they have nothing. They will have nothing. Maybe the tools left for them by their parents. That is also inheritance. So you are, in his world, they will gain from what was given to them and they must make it better. That's how you are worthy of your inheritance. And you will look after, basically looking after your family in life and even in death. Hence, E, I will make donations on behalf of the ancestors. This, is the, this was the Buddha's teaching. In the Buddha's teaching, we believe in mixed lives, rebirth, re-becoming. And in this becoming again, if you are into the wrong zone, you need your children, your successors to do dana and share merits. Okay, but but if you are in the elevated plane, uh, like say they are well and human, and you say, hey, I don't need the deep. It's not that. It's for the child to always remember gratitude, gratitude, and therefore. I will still honor your memory. Hmm? So here, the emphasis I said, it's on gratitude. Hence, I, they support me, I support them, I do my duty by them. It's about reciprocity. You gave me a donation, you gave me an inheritance. I have to be worthy of it. I have to live up to your, your hopes, your dreams. I have a duty to uphold family name. You have to be responsible. I have to be respected. And we look after, we, I will look after them when they have moved on. This is the idea of what a child should do. Hmm? It's quite straightforward. Then to complete the story, because Sigala will grow up, have children of his own. And I think Sigala was married. I'm, I'm not too sure, but I think he was married. He, I, I don't know if he, has, he had kids, but he would, have, he would have married. Because in those days, Buddha married at 16, right? It was considered old. As soon as they, they were biologically ready, they should be already looking at marriage. Okay, so the parent's duty to the child is as follows. You look at A and B. By restraining you from wrongdoing, by guiding you towards good action, A and B. This is a parent's duty to impart wholesome values and morality. Your, uh, as parents, as parents, we are the child's, literally the child's first, first impression of the world. The baby grows up within this household. The way he sees and understands the world will be told to him by the people around him. If we fail in our duty to guide the child morality or morality, 
then subsequently this child does all kinds of things that hurt people, damage society, we are at fault. We, we must share responsibility. If we have guided and they don't quite get it and they are still insisting on their ways, then this is the, the lemon that we get. But if we didn't do this, if we didn't do this, then we have failed them. If we failed society and we have failed them. Restraining one from wrongdoing, guiding one towards good actions. Here, the Buddha did not specify five precepts, four precepts. But earlier on, remember, he, he, preambled, he had already done all the necessary ground laying on what is good, what is wholesome conduct. Your precepts all appeared there already. So by the time Sigala got here, got to here, Sigala didn't really have an idea what's good what's not good, okay? So there was no need for Buddha to explain in detail. The first thing is the parents must teach moral values. The second thing is parents must help them gain skill, gain, develop the ability to earn a living. So I said equip them with wherewithal, meaning the ability, the skill, the knowledge, the education to earn a living. Training in the profession. Okay. The controversial one is this one, supporting the choice of a suitable spouse. One reason why I chose Caucasian translators as opposed to Sri Lankan or Burmese or Thai translators is because you will find that the, the Narada, Bhante Narada, wonderful teacher, wrote books the ones from Mangala Vihara know we use his books. Translated the phrase, the phrase is Pati Rupena Dare Na Samyot Janti, coming together. Samyot Janti is coming together. So a suitable spouse. Suitable. Pati Rupena with a suitable. The Rena spouse, marriage. Samyot Janti is coming together. So, you see how he translated it? Parents must arrange a suitable marriage. There is actually no, no verb. The verb is bind, is joined together. But the Caucasian, the Western translators, they don't, they don't like the idea of arranged marriage. So they change it to supporting the choice. This is also their words. There is nothing here that says supporting choice either. Now, so what did the Buddha mean? We only know three things. In a marriage, parents must get involved. In a marriage, parents must get involved. That's, that's the point. How exactly they get involved depends on time, culture and time. So our teacher very wisely did not say exactly how. See how brilliant the Buddha was? Giving allowance for changing culture, changing time. He couldn't have used the word, parents must do it. He, look, he, used, he actually used specific words. Guiding, restraining were his words. But when it comes to marriage, he only said join. <laughs> he only said you must, that is joining. 
And to me, what it means is parents cannot not get involved in the child's choice of a life partner. Why? Because it's actually union of not just two people, but two families. Of course, the main person to make that choice must be the child. Today, we might have gone completely the other way. In the old days, it was one way, one extreme. It was the extreme that parent had the final word. Today, going by the Western, the American culture, the individual had the final word and parents had nothing to say. So it's the other extreme. We here in the middle of East and West, perhaps the way we think is, it's a balance. Have more people take a look at your choice. It's not a bad thing. More people sizing up whether or not this is going to work, giving their advice. But you must know your place are parents. Parents, you must know your place. Your place is not to veto. Your place is merely to advise. This is our world. Okay? And in the advice, do it skillfully. Have your child's welfare at heart as opposed to your own desire. Sometimes we can't tell the difference. Sometimes when we, when we want something and we want it strong enough, we, we can forget that, that that was not your child's priorities. You, caught, you get caught up in your own desire, you forget the child's priorities. You can advise. So here Buddha said you can advise. You have a role to play. And your child cannot just lock you out. Mommy, daddy, you have nothing to say. This is not your spouse. Child should not do that. Huh? And if your child, if you the child, carefully observe what you were supposed to do, do your duties by them, looking after them, that kind of thing, you also be considerate of their views. Ma. So you can see that if both sides, the child knows his, his duty and has the wholesome quality of gratitude, consideration, um, kindliness. You know, if the child has that, and the parent has the same thing, respect, consideration, uh, unquestioning love, then you, you have that. Clearly, this relationship will not run into trouble. Clearly, you will go along the line of the Buddha's advice. It's when you, when you have your selfish desires enter the picture, then this, what you're prepared to do will start to shift. Hmm? In due time, handing over inheritance. This part has to do with, again, the ancient world. In the ancient world, parents must know when to let go of control over the, the financial resources. In ancient world, the child will take over from parents. They basically, they take over their duty. In many instances, they actually just take over the family duties, the family job, the family way of earning a living. You know the caste system. You're very familiar with the caste system, right? 
Brahmana, uh, Katiyas, Vaishas, Sudras. What are they? They are actually jobs. Huh? Brahmana are the people specializing in religious duties. Katiyas or Shastriyas, depending on Sanskrit or Pali, they are the people responsible for warfare, for, for owning land. They actually fight, they protect, they defend, they expand, they run the, the political power, they're in control of political power. So the Katiyas are essentially, the, not the civil servants, but the, the leaders of the country, the leaders of the place. Vaishas are literally your, your businessmen. They are the businessmen. And then the last lot are the people who, who are doing who are doing the work, the the, the work, the manual, the, the menial tasks, the servants, they are the lower caste. Okay, what does this mean? Why is a caste system based on economic activities? Because in the old days, during the Buddha's time the earning power is passed from son, from parent to son, parent to children. Can you now see the significance of the word handing over inheritance? You want them to earn the money, you want them to manage the business and keep the, 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 the family's wealth going, you have to give them the power to do it. So like that, no? Hence, it's written like this. You expect your child to do the duties well, you will at some point have to give them authority over managing of resources. So hand over your inheritance. Don't wait until you're at the deathbed and come and designate. Number one, you in charge of the cows. Number two, you in charge of the goats. Wait until death bit, then you can do these things, sort these things out. You're going to create all kinds of tension within the family. Okay? And now we're only at ease. Oh no, we're only at ease. I've got to go a bit faster. South. The southern portion, because Sigala is a student, uh, a young man, he would have teachers. So the, the, the Buddha advice, the Buddha's teaching was, Give them respect. When they come in, you rise. You attend classes. Because the relationship, the key element in the relationship is knowledge. Knowledge. Um, imparting of knowledge. And therefore, when you are learning from another, the least that you can do is to show that you're interested in learning regularly attend classes, showing them that you're enthusiastic about learning and receiving instruction. And in those days, I must explain this one, D. Uh, in those days, very often, unless you're super rich like the Buddha's family, otherwise the child actually goes and stay in the teacher's house. They stay in the teacher's house, looked after by the teacher. You pay by, I don't know, eggs and, and, and uh, meat. And I don't know what else you pay. Rice, grains that you bring over to their house. You pay in that way, okay? Some kind of butter trade. But, but you stay with your teacher. 
so your 师父 and your 师母 your 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 teacher and his wife are literally your secondary parents. Yeah. So here the Buddha reminding them that you don't go and stay in people's house for free. Ah,、uh. you stay there. You have to do some work. You have to help around that kind of thing, lah. Hence D. Okay. Hence D. Today, our system of education, the state pays the money for a whole battalion of teachers to guide your children, like a factory production line. This is not this. So you are not expected to go to your teacher's house and clean house for them. But the other part still matters. Why rising for them? It's really because you want to show respect. If you your form takes on a deliberate effort to show respect, it reminds you that you are in a lower position. Humility. Humility helps with learning. Okay, so for those of you who conduct classes and 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 things in. And you want, especially the the classes for young kids. You want your kids all to stand up, and Sawadi, the teacher, okay, to pay their respect to the teacher. Is to train the child, train you to receive, to be receptive to instructions. And the child, the students should want to learn, should want to learn. Because if there isn't that desire to learn, you learn nothing. You will sit there and you will grumble and you will complain and you will learn nothing. You're wasting the poor teacher's time. He'll rather you don't clean his van or car or chariot. Huh? Teachers so respected reciprocate with compassion in five ways. It's quite cute. Training in that self-discipline, ensuring the teachings are well grasped. You are not just teaching them knowledge. You are also responsible for teaching them some some values, specifically on discipline. How do you learn, and how do you learn well? The part that I thought was quite interesting is introducing their friend,、uh, introducing your student to friends and colleagues, because in the old days, when the child comes and learn from you, he actually learns a paisi. He goes bow before a clan, a a guild, a guild, right? It says guild to learn. There are rules in the society, so to speak. And you want the teacher, the responsible teacher, will not lock his his students out of the guild. He will bring them in and introduce to all the sibo, the the I I don't know how you say it in English, sibo, sibu, 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 and sibu. All these things mean mean the peers of your teacher. So I said inducting them into the professional the professional circle. Okay. Providing safeguards in every direction. The reason is because in the old days, I told you earlier on, right? The student actually stay in the teacher's house, stay in 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 his residence, 
and then you are responsible for their well-being. Uh. That is how this comes about. But if you put it into today's context, as a teacher, as a teacher, you do have a certain duty. It may not be a significant part of your job description, but there is a part that, hey, you're training people's mind. Shouldn't you also be touching their heart? Do you know what I'm saying? You're training people's mind, so you're giving them knowledge. They can do their work or they can, they can grow from here, build on other knowledge. But they are spending time with you. It's not just one hour, two hour. It's for a duration. And because it's for that duration, surely you must also touch the heart. Impart some values. Guide them beyond what is just knowledge. Especially, in my view, especially if we are talking about Dhamma. Today, we have Dhamma teachers. And as Dhamma teachers, in my view, it, it doesn't stop with, I give you the information. It, it should also be that you help them understand so that it helps, it helps the ease, ease in the heart. It's knowledge and application. And from the application comes a sense of well-being. So a Dhamma teacher cannot just end with, I shoot the information at you. I also must help you understand how to apply and to listen to you when you say, I have a problem here. My heart doesn't sing. In fact, my heart sink. <laughs> Sorry. I can't help being corny sometimes. <laughs> okay, comes the fun part. This is the part we deal with marriage. Huh? And I told you, right? Because it starts as Sigala. Sigala is a man, right? He's the son. So therefore, it starts with how you should treat your wife. You see that? Why did he, Buddha start with woman and man? What? Ladies first. Buddha Buddha doesn't work like that. Buddha makes his teaching directly relevant to the person sitting there listening. So this part is, this part was most relevant to Sigala. And telling Sigala, he must honor, he must not disrespect. He must be faithful. He must share authority. These four things alone make Buddha a husband ahead of his time. Okay? Make him way ahead. He was talking about gender equality before it even become a fashionable word in our century. 20 years, 21st. The U.S. gave the rights to women to vote in the 20th century, the turn of the century. Buddha, 2,500 years ago, say you must honor, you must respect, and you must be faithful. You must share authority. The, the big one is share authority. Equal partnership. You tell me which teachers start with that. 
And going by this, how can anyone say that the Buddha was biased against women? You look at this. This is an advice to a 16, 17, I don't know, year old boy. It made him way ahead of his time. He was equal partnership, equal authority. And the cutest part, and I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even say anything. I merely put exclamation mark, giving gifts. The Buddha understood the woman. When I used to conduct, when I used to teach what the in class, I used to ask the classes, all the women here in the class, if your boyfriend or your husband forgets your birthday, forgot to give you gift, how do you feel? And the bulk, mind you, uh, the bulk of them will say, not happy. They are miffed. Then I turned the thing and I said, okay, all, all the guys here, all the guys here, if your girlfriend or your wife forgot your birthday, forgot to buy you at Valentine's gift, forgot any of these things, what do you feel? The boy said, I did So I thought that was really cute. It's just something strange here. And the Buddha was spot on. All the little, all the women here in this screen, all, all greening away. Because it really has this cute little thing. I don't know why. I have no idea why. In fact, there was this cute guy who said, he was, she also using my money to buy me gave what? So he wasn't, he said, he rather she doesn't buy any. <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> like that, law. So I, I, I highlighted this because I want to show you that Buddha was actually very sensitive. A sensitive person. No? He knew the heart of the woman. He, the monk, advising, advising this young man who's supposed to be more romantic, right? You must, don't forget, now you, don't forget, you must give her gifts. <laughs> That's so funny. You hear what he said to the wife. You look at what he said to the wife. He said, okay, you must be well organized because her job, right? this is the ancient wife, her job is to run the household. But look at B, kindly disposed to the in-laws and household workers. Kindly disposed towards the in-laws. Many a time, the women tend to have more problems with the in-laws. Many a times. Not, this is not universal. And certainly, it's not supposed to be sweeping. But if you're looking proportionately, right, you hear more complaint from the woman about her in-laws than from the man about his in-laws. He like Bochak. He sometimes doesn't remember. It's not that he doesn't have problems. He probably also has problems, humans. But he sometimes doesn't talk about it as much as the woman would nag. I don't know why. But oddly, the Buddha pointed this out. He didn't tell the, the man, you must be kindly disposed towards your in-law. He told the woman. Now, I have another explanation for this. I said that maybe it's because the woman resides in the house of the husband. So therefore... She, she had a bigger, it's more, it must, it's more critical that she knows how to manage relationship with the in-laws, right? Whereas he doesn't stay with them. So what's there to manage? He's not even, he's not even anywhere near his in-laws. So maybe, in fact, probably the reason, probably the reason. Huh? Um, 
But I thought this is something that you can just take it and say, mm, Buddha is very sensitive. He's careful. He was very careful in checking out where the possible hot spots are. And then he alerted Sigala to the hot spots, to the problems. For the woman, the most important thing, if you're running a household, the most important thing is you manage your resources well. Because if you don't manage it well, the, the family income, the family wealth will dissipate. So this being a layman's suitor, the emphasis here really is about managing relationship, managing resources. And between the man and the woman, the woman is the one who manages the resources at home. So in some society, very Buddhist society, I actually have heard of the woman, the, the, the husband, when he gets his paycheck, a very Buddhist society, not Singapore. <laughs> the husband takes his paycheck, he goes home, he gives it to the wife. Because her job is to manage resources. So we actually have that being implemented in some very, very staunchly Buddhist communities. Then comes, so North, South, East, no, sorry, East, South, West, and North. This is the last one. In terms of uh, relationship of peers, blood relationship, relationship closest to you. And the last, the fourth, the fourth direction is friends and colleagues. The idea here is that I, I, I tend to, I know Buddha is just arranging them such that they are bal it's balanced, but I find it rather cute that in the way he said the friends, how the friends, what you look out for. Yeah, let me put it in a, different, a slightly differently. What you should look out for in your friendship with people, right? I will flip the two sides. This is your friends doing for you. So reciprocated, sorry, this, the other way. This is you, you doing for your friend and this is your friend doing for you, okay? I will flip this like that. Huh? You doing for your friend, the Buddha said, by generosity, by kind words, acting for their welfare, impartiality, and honesty. I want you to bear this in mind, yeah? Then he said the friend should reciprocate like this, protecting you when you're vulnerable, protecting your wealth, being a refuge when you're afraid, not abandoning you, and looking after your descendant. Huh? So you ask yourself, hey, why the words are different? So starkly different. How come it's not interchangeable? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, if you're like that, then why don't you look out like this for your friend? If you expect their friends to do this for you, why aren't you doing this for your friend? Okay, the explanation is this. You know your heart. You don't know your friend's heart. You don't know how they really are. Can you tell if they're impartial and honest? You can't. There's no way you can tell whether they're being impartial or they're absolutely honest. You can't tell some things. But you know your own heart. And he, is, he was saying, in how you treat the world, chaga, 
must be your driving force. Generosity. In how you treat the world. Because generosity is very powerful. Buddha could not tell your friend, your friend should treat you generously. How is that supposed to be your expectation? You're not supposed to have expectations. So you will see that actually the bar for friends is low. The bar for you is high. How you treat the world, that bar is very high. Generosity leh. You say, hey, easy anymore. I bring my friend out, I treat them. No. By generosity, by chaga, it's a lot more than just treating friends, giving friends treats. It's putting aside your own interests. Setting aside your own interests for friends, for colleagues. Setting aside your own interests. Setting aside your own preferences. How many of us actually do this? To the degree he, he said. If you have a class and you all come together to organize something, you have preferences, they have preferences. Being generous means I may have my preferences, but if let's say others want this, I will go along. That is generosity. You will accommodate. You will concede. You will apologize. You will forgive. You will put aside what you want to do for them. So Buddha's bar, he raised it very high. Treat them with generosity. Second, kind words. Meaning, never allow your anger to show. Because if you have agitation and anger, your words come out very nice, man. Very kind, man. Kind, leh. Second, on the same point, when we see our friends, we say things like, hello, how are you? Long time no see. Do you really care? I don't know. Sometimes you do care. Sometimes you really care. But sometimes that's just profoundly. You just say it. You must care. Then you must listen. Then you must empathize. Did you do any of these things? Meaning... When you say, how are you? You generally want to know whether they're okay. And you say things like, I haven't seen you in a long while. Are you all right? Are you feeling good? How is your practice? You want to share something? Da, 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 da. You're really interested in what they have to say. Kind words, lah. Then you acting for their welfare, you choose to look after them, look out for them, take care of them. Because the mind instinct, our instinct is to look out for us. We go somewhere to eat. What do I like to eat? We go somewhere to play. Where do I think I will have fun and enjoy? Acting for their welfare, they run into trouble, you hang around and help. Sometimes that's not easy. I have my own competing interests. Will you be there for them? It's just not to say that 
you cannot have your life. In case someone's going to ask a question, are you like that? Does that mean that I must give up everything for them? You know what is reasonable. If they really have a true and real need, they're in trouble, you know what is reasonable. Because your mind, if you have a conscience, your conscience will break you and say, you're not doing enough. If you have no conscience, Bopi, and I have nothing to say, but if you have a conscience, your conscience will prick you. You're not doing enough. Okay? This thing about impartiality is very cute. Sometimes we are blindly loyal. We don't care. My friend, do or die, don't care. Impartiality actually means you care. There is a part in you that know when your friend has gone wrong. Your friend is going to do something that is going to hurt him. You Impartiality means you do not allow your feelings to govern your values and so you make, you make excuses for him and you're always on his side regardless whether he's right or wrong. But when you have this element, this, this impartiality as part of your, you, what you feel it should be done, you actually care enough to tell him, look, we're not sure if you should do this because it can cause you all these problems. It's going to make you very upset. Do you really want to get affected? Something like that. You are not governed by your feelings. You really are governed by what you think is good for them. Hmm? And honesty. I thought it was very cute that the Buddha actually put in this word, honesty. Which then tells you that in our relationship with people, sometimes we are not fully upfront. Fully upfront. Meaning there is a part in us that maybe wants something out of the relationship. And if we want something out of a relationship, this relationship is not pure, not entirely wholesome. Buddha was just reminding us that in how we handle friendship, we must care genuinely and we must be a source of growth, a source of growth for another. That being with you means they actually become better, good people, wholesome people. Being with you cannot lead them down the longkang. You must scale the heights together. So that's what you are supposed to do for your friends. Then, you flip it the other way around. You look at it. The bar is very low. When you are vulnerable, you jalat jalat, your friend come and protect you. That's what it means. Eh? You are afraid. Again, you jalat jalat, your friend is there for you. You are having misfortune. You jalat jalat, they come and look after you. They don't let you down. Can you imagine? Can you see his, his bar for your friends? is very low. His bar for you is very high. So actually, in a relationship, we don't expect the heaven. We just hope that they are there for you as a safety net. That's all. If your friend is there for you, when the chips are down, they are good friends. They are good people. He didn't say that they must treat you with generosity. They must 
basically put aside their own interest to be there for you. You have to, you the good, you are the practicing Buddhist, you are the one who say you want to be a good Buddhist, who's good disciple. You have to. But when it comes to your expectations of friends, you just say, as long as they don't abandon me when I am dead, dying, they really don't care. <laughs> Die, you hope they don't have walk out on you. They say, I'm content. I'm content. Honoring your descent. I checked this translation. It, it actually means that this element of honoring and me it means that you you i think it means watch out for your kids i think that was what it means although the word used was actually respecting honoring meaning a relationship a relationship is not just between two individuals in the old days this time when life is more life was more uncertain and more fragile you actually depend on each other to watch out for each other's family today you have the state looking after your family so you say for instance your you, 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 your your spouse passed away and there is no family, there's no friend, the state will come in and provide foster service, right? You still have that bottommost safety net. So our world is very different from the world of the Buddha's time. The Buddha's time, the, the world then was a lot more harsh, was harsher. The individual depended on his clan, on his family, on his friends for social support. So it's a social safety net. It must be your immediate family and the friends that you have. Hence, you will find that in, in a few occasions, it's a reminder that you must look out for each other, including this one. Okay? Now we talk about your relationship with a subordinate and your servants. In five ways, workers and servants as the lower direction must be respected by the employer. So, Sigala was the boss. And this is what Sigala, the boss, must do for his subordinates, his, his staff, his workers, his slaves. Allocating work according to aptitude. Providing wages and food. Looking after them when they are sick sharing special treats and giving reasonable time off. So I said, but those was the first trade unionist. Why? Because up until the 20th century, what today you know as a given under the Employment Act as a given was not, was not status quo, was not the norm. Up until the 20th century, this was someone who lived 2,500 years ago. You look at the magnanimity of the mind. Magnanimity of this mind. The kindness, the compassion, 
looking after the lower people at that time, the low the lower caste was not respected. And Buddha was reminding this guy, hey, you got to pay them fair wages, look after them when they are sick, give them work. You, so to be able to do A by allocating work according to aptitude, by to be able to do A, you must understand what they can or cannot do. You don't just slap work on them. You must understand their strengths and their weaknesses and you, you allow them to manage. This is 21st century management theory of philosophy. Managing your people with respect assigning them work in a way they can handle. So you must understand what they can do, what they cannot do, and you do not become excessive and unreasonable in your demand. Reasonable time off, off day. I remember a few years ago, here, here in this country, people were arguing over Sunday Sunday off for their domestic health. What kind of uh, nonsense is that? Look, he's saying, give, give leave, leh. annual leave. <laughs> but the cuteness is actually sharing special treats. Why? We think that we do A, B, C, E. We are very good boss. We think we're very good boss. But you know, when you hear of people who send their, 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 their help, their workers for special classes, and then basically it's not what you want, but it's for them, they, 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 they do well. Uh, you, you come up with treats. Treats, what you eat, you share. What you eat, what you enjoy, you share with them. This is how the Buddha treat people. This is the kind, this is the kind of standard that we have to live up to. A mind this magnanimous, okay? Ah, then it's the other way around. This one also very cute. I asked, I, this one I didn't want to say much. I just say, how many of us observe the above? Start early, finish late, take only. Okay, this one will be okay. Huh? A, B, C, okay. Do work well, okay. But E, <laughs> e. go around and talk nice things about your bosses. Promoting a good reputation for your boss is actually talking well, speaking kindly of your bosses. You don't complain already, the boss very grateful. How many of us actually sit around and say, my boss is very good. He's the sweetest guy. If you do that, A to E, Jun. Very good. If you don't do that, ah yeah, unfortunately, very, very normal, very average. <laughs> why, why E? Why did the Buddha put in E? It's because Buddha comes from the angle of gratitude. If one is content, 
and one is grateful. One is content, one will be grateful. One will be very happy with whatever that he has. So when you're very happy with whatever that you have, you'll be very, you, it's very easy for you to say nice things. It's only when you're unhappy, when you're not content, when you have uh, expectations, then you, this one, you will miss it. Okay? So what, he, what the Buddha was, the point here would mean that as much as possible in your work, in your world, with whoever you're working for, find a reason to feel grateful. Find a reason to feel content. If you're so unhappy, change, move on. Don't stay there and stain your mind with all the yup, 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 yup. Move on. But, but if you don't want to move on, then for your own peace of mind, really find a reason to be grateful. If you can find a reason to be grateful, you will be a much happier person wherever you are. Okay? And it's the same. In all our relationship, if we find good things to say about the relationship, all our relationships, if we find things to say, we should place our attention on those aspects. If we place our attention on aspects that we are unhappy with, it will create in us all kinds of agitation. And then we really, really will be really unhappy. So in all your relationship, much, as much as possible, you actually count blessings. Oh, my mother is so sweet. Oh, my father is so lovely. Oh, my sons, ayah, he may not, see, we may, ayah, why is he not more, more hardworking? At least my son didn't go and run around with bad friends. He's a good boy, he comes home. You know something like that? Find a reason to be grateful for. Especially with regards to relationship with children and spouse. Those two, you have to be very careful. Why? Parents will always give you some discount. You can neck and neck and neck, they will still give you discount. Children tend not to give discount. That's my observation uh, about relationships. Not, not, not always this, always like this. But the, the risk of it happening like this is high. So your children will nag and they will grow up. When they grow up, they will remember. Treat them with respect and kindness, with a listening ear, with, with proper care. Then you can guide them very far. They can go very far with your guidance. <laughs> okay, now, uh, up and down. Brahmin and us. The, the monastic, the spiritually elevated people. Because this is the upper direction, the zenith. And here, this is A, B, and C. Kindly action, speech, and thought. Wholesome, wholesome, wholesome. Hmm? A, B, and C. Keeping an open door and providing for material needs. You look at what the Buddha said. Your duty to monastic is be respectful and be kindly. And be supportive. 
very minimal expectation because here is the Buddha say, what should you do for us? And the Buddha is only asking him to be kindly. Action, speech and thought. Don't shut your door on us, meaning you welcome us. Don't see us coming and go, don't do that. Just welcome us. And providing material needs, that's all he needed. He didn't ask for any more. But his own duty to the lay people, you look six. Everyone is five. This one is six. Restraining you from wrongdoing, guiding you to good action. A and B. Guidance on morality and teaching. Wholesome guide, guidance on wholesomeness. A and B. Anywhere here, see? Four Noble Truth, A Four Path? Don't have. The essence of the Dharma, Nibbana, don't have. But wholesome guidance, it's there, A and B. On how to cultivate rightful actions and mind. My system just kicked me out. I don't know why. My system is actually okay. Okay. Continue. Um, restraining you from wrongdoing, guiding you to good actions. And then the third one says, thinking compassionately. Meaning to say, the monastic, the monastic has a duty, according to the Buddha, has a duty to see the world, to regard others with compassion. What does it mean? It means that it is his duty to alleviate, to help people alleviate suffering to inspire, to motivate, to get them to, if they are in, if you are feeling deep pain, to help them manage. D, telling you what you ought to know. E, clarifying what you already know. And F, showing you the path to heaven. They are actually together. Knowledge, guidance on knowledge or practice, and if you guide them wisely, they will be able to have a good death and a good rebirth. That's the idea. So the duty of a monastic is not, it's, it's quite, quite a tall order. Your job, their job, their job is in, in return for your, your kindness, uh, you only expected kind words, kind action, kind thoughts. Keep your door open and help them, support them materially. That's all you have to do. But in return, they protect you from a lower birth. They guide you on the Dhamma. They help you with the understanding and the practice. And at the end of this, at your deathbed, with your confidence in them, with the joy you have in the Dhamma, you lived. You go into heaven. 
eh, not easy there. The job is harder, <laughs> much harder. Okay. So from now on, it's just the, the verses that the Buddha gave. And I, I thought I'll just read through for completeness. Huh? Mother and father is the east, teachers and south, spouse and family is the west, and so on and so forth. These directions a person should honor in order to be truly good. So in our life as a lay person, we have to respect a certain way of managing relationship. We have duties. We have some obligations. We have to, people don't have to ask, you deliver, do it. And the underlying principles in these, in, in, in how you treat people is really respect, consideration. Respect, consideration, gratitude. Ask of yourself, not us of another. Very often we find people saying, this person is doing this for me, this person is not doing this for me, why is the parent like that, why is he not like that? You have people saying things like that. Actually what is going on in their mind is, their expectations, their due, people should do it for them. Here the Buddha is flipping it around. He is saying, don't talk about other people's due. Talk about what you must do for people. And because you did all these for them, they may end up doing all that for you. And if they did do those things for you, good na, well done. You tandio, you know, well done. You, you are beneficiary. So whichever side that you are on, that side that you are, say, say to your parent, the child's duty is key. If you are the parent, if you are the parent, your duty as a parent is key. This is what shapes your relationship. Then you don't go to your child with a checklist and say, hang on, uh, let me show you your duty. Uh, these are your duties. You don't do that. That's not how it's done. You are the one learning Sigaloa, not your child. If you want your child to learn, you just send this to him the whole text, show the entire text, and then he will learn at his pace, okay? The model lay disciple, according to the Buddha, wise and virtuous, gentle and eloquent, humble and accommodating, such a person attains glory. Wisdom will be reflected in behavior and speech. That is why you have the words wise and virtuous, gentle, eloquent. Well said. The translation is well said. Good speech. Of course, the, our translator says it's eloquent. Eloquent having a certain connotation. Very sweet words. No, actually, it's well-spoken. Well, good speech. Eh? One who is humble will be easygoing and therefore accommodating. And all these package deal. Eh? Energetic, not lazy, 
not shaken in misfortune, flaws in conduct and intellect. If the person has wisdom, the mind will be steady at all times, hence not shaken in misfortune. If you have wisdom, if you have, if there is wisdom, this person is not easily affected. So we see misfortune, it can, it's, I, I, I change it to at all time because really it's not just when things are going badly, but let's say there are tensions, there are disharmony, we have all kinds of uncertainty, the country is going to change and you're very uncomfortable with it. If there is wisdom, you can be equanimous. Some degree, there will be the degree of equanimity. Attains to glory means social, social, social respect and you, it's elevation. The idea is you will grow. There is growth for you, whether it's spiritual, professional, personal. The idea is you will not regress, you will get better, okay? Compassionate maker of friends, approachable, free from stinginess, a leader, a teacher, and a diplomat, such a person attains glory. Generosity and kind words conduct for others, welfare and partiality, all things, these are suitable everywhere. So all these words you can read for yourself. This is not... Basically, the model, the model uh, lay person has a whole series of wholesome qualities which will be reflected in the way that he behaves. A person with this kind of qualities has wisdom. The mind is at peace. That sums it up. Okay? Oh, some more. <laughs> Social dispositions hold the world to... Should this is not exist? Okay. Basically, these individuals, the model lay follower with all those wholesome qualities and understanding will be able to manage relationships very well so that the society as a whole comes together. Imagine if you don't have these individuals in your life. Maybe you are the one playing that role as the linchpin. As the, linchpin. the idea here is when an individual has wisdom, sila, wisdom and sila. Here, no samadhi. Eh? Here's just wisdom and sila. And he has all the qualities of a good person. Then this person is that linchpin that holds society together. Keeping it going. So you see, the child would not receive respect, honor from her. No, sorry, the mother would not receive respect and honor from her child, neither would her father, should these kindly dispositions not exist. The first anchor of a social relationship is that between the parent and the child. You have that crack, everything else falls apart. That's the idea. Okay? Upon these things, the wise reflect, they obtain greatness and are sources of praise. So, we in our regular life must be mindful of our duties, do the best that we can for the people around us with minimal expectations of others. 
you you can do all these things that is a reflection of mundane wisdom this is mundane wisdom what is wisdom 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 essentially is when a person makes a judgment so you have to weigh the considerations but after weighing the considerations he makes a decision makes a judgment that judgment typically will preserve harmony, ensure harmony, ensure the maximum welfare of as many people, maximum welfare for maximum number. That's the idea. A wise decision is one that causes less trouble for as many people as possible. An unwise decision is one that will cause conflict, cause tension, cause pain. Okay? So, if you know how to ensure good relationship all around, it does reflect that there is wisdom on your part. If you, you, the person, you, you all, all of you, if you all tell me and you said, I cannot, I, cannot, I cannot quite remember having tension with many people, most people. I'm okay with most people. And most people agree with you. Then it tells, it would say that you do have wisdom because you're managing relationship very well. But if you say that, oh, I actually don't know why, but I have a lot of tension with a lot of people, then there is a lacking in mundane wisdom managing relationship because you cannot say that I am swear that's why I got a lot of bad relationship no it cannot be if if you have so many tense relationship it must be that there is something that caused you either to say wrongly manage wrongly and then then you comes into all kinds of tension but doesn't matter go learn from and if you can digest exactly what the Buddha was advising and you do it well, you should be able to repair relationship, repair damage to relationship. Okay? And so Sigala was very happy. He's standing on the roadside. Can you imagine how long this conversation must have been? Standing on the roadside listening to the Buddha explain the Dhamma to him, how to manage relationship. Da, 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 da. At the end of which he said, Oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. Now, I know those of you who read Sutta will all will, will recognize this stock phrase. But this stock phrase, you may not have paid attention to how beautiful this stock phrase is. You know, huh? It is as though you have set upright what was overturned, uncover what was concealed, shown the path to one gone astray, brought an oil lamp into the darkness such that those with eyes could see. This phrase means hope. Hope means there is a way out. Means you are no longer blinded by ignorance. The guy is so happy. He is saying, 
what has been overturned set upright. Something that is overturned cannot grow, cannot collect. It's not useful. Overturned means it's wasted. All those information, knowledge is irrelevant and does not make life better. You set it up right. So now I can collect, now I can grow. Okay? Uncover what was concealed. I never knew. I never knew. I didn't even know it was there. Now, you show me what it is. Okay? Don't you feel this way about the Dhamma? Don't you feel this way about the Dhamma? For those of you who are new here, the Buddha's teaching, it's concealed. So whatever that you learn, you can't grow. Whatever knowledge that you have, it doesn't make you happier. So the Buddha, it up, upright, it upturned it. Now you can collect. Now you can grow. Now you can rejoice. Uncover what's concealed. If it's concealed, you never knew. You never knew it's there. You never saw it. The idea here is, you don't even know you don't know. So now he uncovered. Now you know. Then you have a choice. When you know, you have a real choice. When you don't know, what choice is there? There's no choice. You're stuck to no fault of yours. Shown the path to one gone astray, meaning to say, think of you traveling. You think of it like that. Huh? You are in the wilderness of life. You're heading in all directions. Don't know where you're going. You don't know what's at the end of the destination. You just mindlessly, aimlessly, you walk. Then came a path. A path that you don't know where this leads to. But at least a path means someone has been here before. And it leads somewhere. Is this better than mindlessly wandering in the wilderness? Or having a direction to go? So here... So you must imagine, uh, you must imagine how beautiful the Buddha's words were. If you are lost, a stream means you are lost. Worse, imagine you're lost in the forest of, I don't know, Malaysia's biggest forest is where? It's a Bahan forest. <laughs> it's a really huge forest. And you're lost. Then you came across a path. Just, do you imagine how grateful you will be? How grateful to know that path as opposed to you don't know whether you're going to die in that forest. And now the final one brought an oil lamp into the darkness such that those with eyes could see. You don't even know you have eyes. That's what it means. You don't even realize that there is such a thing as sight because you're in a dark room you didn't see. You couldn't see. You couldn't tell. You didn't even know you're blind. But someone brought the light in and you go, oh, there is such an experience. There is such an experience as to, to see. Can you imagine how that would feel? Can you imagine how that would feel? So these four points, these four imageries, generally people just read very quickly and uh, but it's very powerful. 
So this guy is so happy. He finally learned something that he could that could help him to grow, that could cost him. He knew now what he's supposed to do. He has a direction. He has aspirations. He has a vision he can see and he's so happy with it. So too has the Buddha made clear the Dhamma by various ways. I go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the monastic community. May the exalted one accept me as a refuge for as long as I live. This means, he said, you're now my teacher. The Dhamma is my teacher. All these practitioners are my teacher. I will go to them for the idea of refuge means once I am lost, I am confused, I feel that I have to take care of myself in every sense of the word, I get caught up and things get worse, da, 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 da. it's behind me. It's now behind me. I have arrived at a place. A refuge is a destination. I've arrived in a place where I feel comfortable, I feel comforted. I feel I can grow and be better. That's a refuge, okay? That's a so, isn't this beautiful? I hope it speaks to you about your own heart. I think this is it. Yeah, okay. That was it. We will answer questions first. Three questions. One quarter against, okay, can the one quarter against future misfortunes be today's life insurance? Can, can. It does not matter what, what you put it as. The idea here is you set aside money that you do not use to ensure that when you need emergency funds, it's available, okay? So insurance, you know what? that's why I tell, I've told students before, Buddha approves of insurance, even though in his time they don't have insurance. <laughs> Sister Sylvia, in most suttas, we're able to see Panya Siddha Samadhi quite easily. But in this Sigalo, what the, it talks about managing relationship, resources, morality. Maybe there's some Panya. You see, there is no Samadhi here. He's talking to a lay person. This is a lay person, and for a lay person who was, when they first met, he was doing all kinds of funny things, right? He was performing a ritual. And the Buddha then taught him sila. The whole thing is sila. And if he understands this sila properly, it becomes his panya. It becomes wisdom. But there is no samadhi here, you're right. Huh? But if he gets all these right, if he gets all these right, a day will come when he will go to the Buddha and say, Buddha, I think I can do a bit of meditation. <laughs> and it will, be, it will not be difficult. Okay? Question three, we all would like to associate with wise friends, good friends, not so good in, with friends in good practice and disassociate with not so good friends. Who is a nice person? Doesn't want to say bad friends. Those with vices who might wish to turn over a new leaf, then how this relationship will be and how can these friends be given a chance to change for the better if we choose to disassociate instead of help, giving a helping hand. I understand what you're saying. I will say it like this. 
when you are practicing or when you don't really understand the Dhamma very well, in the first place, your wisdom is not steady. Associating with people with the wrong kind of values that will, if you embrace these values, will lead you to become more and more in pain. Then you need to distance yourself from that relationship. If your wisdom, if your understanding and your own practice has stabilized a lot, and these individuals, your, your erstwhile friends, comes back and said, we would like to change. We would like your help. Your understanding has gone up. You believe you are in a position to help them in their cultivation. Associate. Because the fact that they come to you and say, we want to learn and we, want, we hope to change, that in itself already reduces reduce the foolishness. They are wiser. wiser. So point one is, are you in a position to help? If you are just a bit ahead, it's still okay. As long as you know what you're doing and you have some wisdom and you're not going to be affected by them. Okay? Then you can help. And they are genuinely interested in learning. They are not here just to tekan you, you know. They are actually here to learn. You can help. It doesn't matter. But what it means in the teaching is they have their own life and they prefer to go in that general direction, which is unwise. And if you are not steady in your own practice or understanding, understanding and your wholesomeness, you're not steady in that. By mixing with them, maybe you feel compelled to be like them. Then this, you must be very careful. You don't want to associate. Okay, if an association leads to good outcome for both, do it. If an association leads to bad outcome for both, don't do it. If an association leads to possible good outcome and you are steady, do it. You are steady. That's the point. If you are not steady, if you don't really understand, if you're not, your understanding is minimal and you are easily corruptible, don't do it. Don't mix. P protect yourself first. Okay? Any more questions? Is natural calamities a way to control population and pollution? No. All events in life are cause and condition. Meaning to say you have a cause and condition, things will happen. It is not driven. It is not intended. I know that there are, there are some, some uh, views about how when you have a massive calamities like that, the intent is to control population growth. The outcome may well be that, but there is no intent. There is no one being intending for massive people to be so hurt. The way I see it, it really is the cruelty of modern society. I hate to say this, but 
really the cruelty of modern society and our tremendous capacity to cause harm. You put these two together, you're putting nuclear bomb in the hands of children who don't know any better, who is selfishly self-absorbed and he will fling it to his desire and that cause pain and harm on everyone. So what do I mean by this? As a people, we are not enlightened. As a people, we are very self-centered. We have changed very much. Our self-centeredness and our capacity for violence and cruelty hasn't really changed that much. What has changed is really the values that are coming in from outside. Okay, so maybe at a national, at a, at a universal level, there is this what... you. Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The idea that actually we have a common humanity and we collectively agree that it's better for this and that. But they are statements. When it comes to reality, profits still drive the big businesses. Beings are still being slaughtered on a massive scale. The way that we use resources is tremendously and catastrophically wasteful. Can you imagine you open a box of goodies, you peel plastic by layers of plastic, by layers of plastic, all for the purpose of aesthetics. Don't even get me started. And when, when, when men is so irresponsible, the result is catastrophic damage on the environment in a massive scale because we are doing things in a massive way now. We have machines that cough out things and do things in a massive way. So how would, how, how, all these killings, it was never done on the industrial scale before. 20th century, bagus. <laughs> yeah, Malay, right? Bagus. <laughs> bagus kali. 20th century is madness. And then, and then like that. Lo. So, the result, the result of really our own selfishness, it leads to problems for the next and future generation. And I like to tell my kids, my nieces this. Huh? I like to tell people around me this. I said, we don't even realize. It's because someone has actually said to me, hey, I am already so old. Ten years time, I'm gone. I said, yeah, but you're coming back. We are all coming back. How many of us sitting here can say, Sister Sylvia, put away. I definitely arahan this life. I ain't coming back. None of us dare to say that, right? So the odds of us, if we practice properly, maybe you end up in a heavenly place, and 200 years time, you come back again. <laughs> Same problem. But it may well be that we come back as human again. And we come back as humans, so now you're younger than your kids. Surely you'll run smack into the problem we created for ourselves. And in the, in the typical way, we say, Kama. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm laughing so happily some more. Uh, there are some questions that just came back. She was caused people to... Okay, I have a question here that was that said, 
financial issues cause people to have less children. What would be your, what is my view? And I was asked to explain about heaven. You know, this thing about heaven should be another talk. It shouldn't be this talk. <laughs> but I will explain the issue on financial, uh, financial issue causing people to have less children. I tell you, it is not financial or not financial or anything. We, I said, I've always said cause and condition leading to a certain outcome, right? What, what is standard is our desire. Different place, different time, different people. We still have desires, pleasures, delights. We live in a world where we can have these delights and desires without, with, without having to do certain things. Okay? Now, if you live in an agricultural society, and in an agricultural society, you need to, and you are a farmer, you will need to plant, field, cultivate. You will need labor. Because you need labor, you will, you may, you may think that it's very necessary to have children because the future generation of cultivators. So you do it. Your desire is to have more money, more income, uh, more comfort, and the children is a solution. But in our world, in this society, children, sometimes you perceive them to be encumbrances. They, they have problems. They, they take out your resources. They diminish your resources without giving anything back. So you may have people who say, I'm happier without kids. And then, 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 then like that, you, you choose to go this path. So really, it's not directly correlated. I got money, I have kids. I got no money, I have kids. Because you have other cultures that have a very different perspective. And in that culture, they will say, have money, have more kids. Have no money, also must have kids because that's your duty. It's all mind-made, all values, depending on your culture, depending on what you have been into your years. And, and, and then eventually you have this issue now. We agree in our, in our world, in the society, we say we don't need, we don't need kids. Old age, the state will look after us. We can have money, we will buy a space in a retirement village. No need children. You know what? I don't want. And so then, then that happens. Then it goes that way. Okay. Can I invite everyone to join me in just reflecting on the words here? Every week, every week, ever so often, I'll be reading these words. But I think it's beautiful. And I, I will repeat this again today just because I think it's important for us to remember the Ma is not just about us. The Ma really, when we learn and grow in the Ma, we really must share, give out, give others support and so on. So I tweak the words a little and I, I will say this again. If you had experienced joy listening to the Ma, do consider honouring our teacher by putting into practice his first teaching to the lay community. Be chaga. Donate, help, give support of time and energy 
to a worthy charity or spiritual organization of your choice at your convenience. Be joyous in the giving. This part is very important. Never, we must never take for granted the blessings that we have enjoyed in this life. As our forerunners had done it right by us, we must continue the good work for those who come after. May the demand last long. May we continue to enjoy supportive conditions for learning and practice. And may we never deviate from the true teaching as long as life lasts. Spend a moment to reflect on this. Spend one moment to be grateful for our blessings. When you feel the joy, we're ready to do idaminiatina, the rest. Okay. Okay. In your mind, in your mind, feel the joy, feel the blessing, feel the gratitude. And as you experience this joy, the blessings, the gratitude, you say quietly in your mind. You can say it out aloud as long as it's muted. Okay. I will read this on behalf of us all. Etawata Chamehi Sambadang Punya Sampadang Sabbe Dewa Anumu Dantu Sabba Sampati Sibia Etawata Chamehi Sambatang Punya Sampadang Sabbe Buddha Anumu Dantu Sabba Sampati Sibia Eta wata cha amehi sampadang punya sampadang sabbe satta anumodantu sabba sampatisitya whatever merits that we have thus acquired may devas beings and humans partake of it may it contribute greatly to their happiness Invite, invite your past relatives to come and join us on sharing these merits. Idam me niati nangkotu sukita hontu niatayo. Idam me niati nangkotu sukita hontu niatayo. Idam me niati nangkotu sukita hontu niatayo. May this marriage accrue to our departed relatives and may they be well and happy. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.